This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan, your host, and you are listening to our weekly podcast where at Parent Footprint, our mission is to make the world a better, loving, and more compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. At Parent Footprint, we firmly believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same for happiness, health, and engagement, and awareness in our own lives. We believe that awareness is the foundation for your vision of successful parenting, and with increased awareness, we can be purposeful and intentional about leaving a healthy footprint on our children. Today's show is called Making Meaningful Differences for Individuals with Autism with Amy Laurent. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Amy. Amy is a developmental psychologist and a registered pediatric occupational therapist. She is currently in private practice specializing in the education of children with autism spectrum disorders, also known as ASD, and related developmental disabilities. The majority of Amy's work involves collaborating with and supporting early intervention teams, school teams, and families. Her services focus on the creation of educational programs and environments that facilitate children's active engagement in learning at home, in schools, and throughout their communities. The CERTS model, which we're going to be talking about today, of which she is a co-author, along with differentiated instruction and developmental theory, guide her practice. Amy is currently an adjunct family uh, f- faculty member, probably family as well, for the, psycho- <laughs> <laughs> for the psychology department at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, she previously served as adjunct faculty member for the communication disorders department at Emerson College and the University of Rhode Island. She has a ton of experience. Um, her current research, which we're really going to be talking about today, is how the relationship between the characteristics of young children diagnosed with autism and strategies used by parents to support them can make a huge difference in the developmental trajectory of a child's life. Amy, I got through that. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I always feel like someone should say, and she likes walks on the beach with her dog and knitting after they do that kind of thing anyway, but yes. Make it a little more personal, right? Um, So to make it a little more personal, tell us how you got into this subfield and this subspecialty uh, in your work? So the true story is when I graduated as an occupational therapist, I specialized in working with individuals who had traumatic brain injuries. 
And I loved everything about it. I worked in trauma ICUs through rehab um, and outpatient, but then I got engaged and I moved. And when I moved, I moved to Rhode Island and there was nowhere in Rhode Island that was practicing the innovative um, therapeutic techniques that we were using where I had been before. So I decided I would work with kids briefly while I found out what I really wanted to do in my life. And the first child I worked with in an outpatient setting had autism and I haven't looked back since. Wow. So I fell into it. It was not something I intended to do, but I have not just fallen in, but fallen in love and I could not imagine myself doing anything else. I was going to say you've, you've far more than fallen in. I mean, it's become a passion from what I can gather from reading about your work. Absolutely. Yes. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's guided um, my practice for the last 20 some years. So yeah, it's absolutely um, where I want to be and where I need to be and um, where I find meaning. To set the stage for the conceptualization and the foundation of your work, please tell everyone what the CERTS model is, and I'm going to spell it for everyone. It, it stands for, for S-C-E-R-T-S, um, and it is the platform by which you have done quite a bit of work and also um, guides intervention as well. Yeah, so CERTS is actually um, representative of my work, but also three other co-authors as well. So I would be remiss not to mention them at this point. So Dr. Barry Prasant, who's affiliated with Brown University here in Rhode Island. Dr. Amy Weatherby, who's at Florida State University, who's a distinguished research professor in the School of Medicine there. And Emily Rubin, who's the Educational Outreach Coordinator for the Marcus Autism Center and Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, the four of us have come together um, over the course of time to create this model of intervention for children on the spectrum. And it is, CERTS is an acronym because in the field of autism, you really can't have a model of intervention without an acronym. It's kind of a joke, but it's kind of true <laughs> at the same time. Yep. So <laughs> CERTS stands for Social Communication, Emotional Regulation, and Transactional Support where we really see the priorities for comprehensive educational programming for individuals who are on the spectrum. So social communication and emotional regulation are the skills or abilities that we hope to bolster and develop within the child to be able to interact in their um, environments and with important people in their lives while doing that through bolstering the partner's transactional support abilities, which are those interpersonal supports or learning supports that we put in place to make engagement and activities more accessible to the um, individuals who are on the spectrum. So it's a, it's a three-part model, but it's really geared at bolstering skills and abilities in both the children and then in the most important partners in their lives. So their family members, as well as their educators and their peers um, and community members as well. So take us Tell us, tell us, what is that, what is that like? Because as a listener and as a parent, particularly a parent listening um, who has a child on the spectrum, how do you interact and intervene both with the child and with the parent in this model? So it's an interesting question. So we start actually within our assessment. So our assessment, we have a, a curriculum-based assessment, and it's not a curriculum that most people think of, where you open a textbook and you say, on this day, we're going to do this activity to address this skill. The curriculum is more a scope and sequence of goals that looks at the developmental level of the child in terms of their ability to connect to other people for a variety of different reasons, using a variety of different means, as well as how they handle um, regulatory challenges throughout their day in terms of engaging in and, you know, predictable routines as well as new and changing activities. But that curriculum, that scope and sequence of goals at the developmental level, we would assess the child in their natural 
routines in their natural activities with their natural partners, which means if we're working with a child who's in early intervention, we're going to go into the home and we're going to watch that child interacting with their family members and see how they do it really what's their experience like and mm-hmm. what skills that they use at that time. At the same time, we're watching the child to figure out where their strengths are because CERTS is very much a strengths-based model. We want to build upon their strengths while addressing the unique challenges that they have. We're going to also be watching that child's partner, whoever it is. So if it's their brother or sister on that day or their mother or father, or maybe they're in a daycare environment and we've got a preschool teacher, we're going to be assessing and watching the partner to figure out what it is that that partner's doing that's really supporting that child's active engagement, that's pulling them out, that's making them want to be part of that interaction, and at the same time looking for those things that might be hindering interaction. Not in a punitive way to say, hey, you did this and the child didn't want to engage with you, but as in an awareness kind of way. Hey, we noticed when you really got down on their level and you waited for them to come to you, they were so excited. They ran right over. But when you got right in their face and you said, good morning, really loudly, they went under the table, right? Mm -hmm, Um, So to be able to um, show those differences in interactive styles or supports that are in place for the child between partners, because oftentimes we get into a situation where, you know, even with a family, I'll go into a home of a young child and the mom will say, oh, they'll do that with you, but they would never do that with me. Well, that to me is like, oh my gosh, okay, we need to fix this immediately <laughs> because it's not, it's not true. And it's more about the parent doubting their ability than them not being able to do it. But it's right. also, there's no magic. It's just about let's sit and watch and really understand your child's experience. Give them time. You be present in the situation, figure out what they need and come to them with what they need. So the assessment, when you say, what does it look like? Well, we start in the assessment. We say, what are the strengths of the child? Where are the unique challenges? What are the strengths of the partner? What are the unique challenges where they need to bolster so we can all kind of get on the same page and interact with the child or the individual in the same way? And then we use that to inform our intervention. And our intervention is done, again, in natural context. So it's not like, oh, let's go back to the conference room and create this really comprehensive treatment plan and have to buy all these toys and lug all this stuff in. It's, oh, you do snack time at home? We want to work on the child requesting. We can work on requesting at snack time, and we can do that by using this kind of interpersonal support, waiting expectantly, using gestures and maybe a see-through container they can't open. So we take natural situations and we tweak them just a little bit um, to scaffold at the right developmental level with the supports that are going to help the child quickly catapult into um, the gains that we want to see that are going to help them be more connected throughout their day. I love the strength-based focus because, you know, so much of the time in our field, it's so so pathology-based. What's wrong with you instead of what are your assets and what's right with you? Yeah, and I think that's really true in a lot of models of education, but in particularly models of intervention for children who have disabilities. We tend to see, right, they're referred to special education because they have a disability. So you kind of come with that lens when you see them. And, you know, I often think about, I had a um, wonderful friend, a neuropsychologist that I worked with who just said, you know, Amy, she's like, ASD or autism, it's a really unique disability. It's a social disability. It does not exist within the child. It exists within the interaction. And that has stuck with me for years because it's really, really true, right? She's like, you see, you see a child with autism and they're doing something they're really good at. They're sitting in their room playing their favorite video game. She's like, that child has no disability at all. 
And in fact, they probably look really gifted, right? But it's when you go to interact with them and there's this space between you and that person that you see the disability emerge. And oftentimes it depends on how good the partner is at adapting to the child's learning style or the child's interactive style how disabled the child looks. So we often get into those situations where the parent will report, oh, they can do this at home. And you have the school staff sitting there going, I've never seen that, right? And again, mm-hmm. it's not because the child's like withholding something at school. There's something about the interactive style of the parent and the supportive home environment. They're allowing the child to express their strengths in ways that they might not be able to um, at school or they might not feel comfortable doing at school. But it's really about this notion of coming together as a team and um, supporting the child so those strengths can really flourish and emerge and kind of taking ownership as partners that we're part of the problem, but we're also really part of the solution. And that's exciting. And you talked about for parents just to be able to be present for their kids. And we know parents of special need kids, uh, special need kids often needing a lot of support um, early on in their lives, we get just molded to sort of do and to intervene. And sometimes it's really hard just to be present with the child and let things unfold. Absolutely. Because I think, you know, there's the, there's this stress and especially with the developmental disability where people are constantly talking about, you know, windows, right? The window's going to shut, you know, early intervention, we have to get in quickly. And early intervention is so important. And I'll be the first to talk about that. But learning is a lifelong process. And that's one of the biggest lessons I think that uh, we can impress on parents of very young children, you know, those 15, 16, 18 month olds who are being diagnosed is we've got a lifetime here. Um, and, and they're your child and relationship and relationship is what's really important um, in moving this individual for, forward, not, um, you know, whether they can match their colors or they know their letters. It's about being connected to other people and being able to learn through those connections with other people. I know from my work uh, within this population and uh, related populations with developmental challenges, this emotional regulation piece is a primary issue that parents are dealing with is how do we help our child regulate? And then, of course, a parent footprint and other we talk about how do we help ourselves regulate, which is so key. <laughs> um, and I, I'm guessing you have something to say about that. Yeah. So so emotional regulation is actually when the, uh, the model was first being developed, it was the reason that I was brought into the model because I am a pediatric occupational therapist. And my three co-authors all have various backgrounds, but they're all speech and language pathologists. So they had the social communication thing really covered very, very well. Um, So, you know, they had asked me to come in and flesh out this part of the model. But actually, Barry Prasant, who I mentioned earlier, first wrote about emotional regulation in this population of individuals with autism in 1998. And that was really kind of a trailblazing article when he wrote it, because at that point, I mean, you know, people were still talking about individuals with autism, not feeling emotions, not experiencing emotions. Um, And Barry was the first to say, hey, no, this is a core challenge. And now, of course, we've got wonderful, amazing physiological studies being done and neuropsychology studies being done that are backing this up, you know, imaging studies as well. But this regulation piece is really part and parcel of the diagnosis of autism. And while it's not part of the DSM per se, there are now more characteristics than the DSM, including hyper and hyporesponsivity to sensory information that are included in the diagnostic criteria, which are also related to the regulation side than we've ever seen before. So it's a very exciting shift. Um, and it's also really become a huge focus within um, the educational community for individuals with autism, this notion 
notion of if children aren't well regulated, if students or individuals with autism aren't well regulated, they're not going to be available for learning and interacting. And if they're not going to be available for learning and interacting, they're not going to be able to gain all the skills and information and valuable lessons that we're hoping to be able to share with them. So yeah, I'm regulation's my sweet spot. It's, it is what I could talk about that all day long. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit more about it because um, parents are thinking, okay, what what can I do? Like, what can I do to help my young or older child on the spectrum um, and those of our um, listeners who have intense kids with regulation issues, even if they're not officially diagnosed on the spectrum? You know, what can I do to help with that growth and development? So I think I'm just going to back up and piggyback on one point you said, one of the things that's really important for me to say about CERTs is it's a developmental curriculum. And I think I might've mentioned that already, but what that means is it was developed for students with autism in particular, because we knew it addressed their core challenges. However, we have many educators, parents, practitioners who use it and apply it to different populations who have challenges in communication and regulation. So if you have listeners who say, hey, my child you know, isn't on the spectrum, this isn't for me, um, the regulation curriculum is something that is still kind of wide open to anybody. As I often say, I can take my quote unquote, neurotypical 10 year old and plot him right out for you and tell you where he is. He may not want me to do that, but, <laughs> but I can and, and maybe do mm-hmm. in my mind on a regular basis. So one of the, the key things I would say, just in terms of a very practical piece of advice for your listeners, is one of the most important things to think about is the developmental level of the child or individual who's in your life. And that's really critical. So in CERTS, we have three different partner stages. We have the social partners, who are those individuals that we we consider our developmentally youngest. They're before words. So they're using things like gestures and facial expressions, proximity, um, maybe kind of hand over hand tool gesture sort of kind of communication can be any age, any age, but developmentally, you know, in that kind of zero to 12 month range. Um, And then we have our language partners and language partners range about from 12 months of age developmentally to about 36. So those are our first words kiddos who have early language who may be using single words and some simple word combinations to connect to other people. And then we have our conversational partners. And conversational partners are um, individuals who have pretty sophisticated language skills. So vocabularies, well over 100 words, more than 20 novel word combinations, meaning they're communicating for a lot of different reasons with a lot of different people using their own language to do that. And so what I say is it's really important from a regulatory standpoint to understand who your child or who the important individual in your life with autism is, is a learner, because that's how you figure out what types of strategies you can use with them. So if the child in your life or the individual in your life is a social partner, I'm only going to use behavioral strategies, sensory motor strategies, those really early developing strategies that we all use. So you think about things like comfort objects and pacifiers when you think about young, young children like infants. But when we think about individuals who have that kind of same capabilities but are older, we're going to think about, oh, these are the kids who need the physical breaks, the trampolines, the um, brushing techniques, the maybe chewy snacks, those types of things. Those are the things I'm going to use to help regulate that type of learner. I can't use language to help regulate them. My first them boards, my timers, my schedules, all of those things aren't going to be meaningful to them. If they're not processing language for communication, they're not processing it for regulation. I'm probably just going to annoy them. And that's one of those situations where you say, you know, I'm going to come over and I'm going to show them the emotion card because they're feeling really mad. And you put the emotion card in front of the child's face and they take it and they throw it 
And you're like, oh, that didn't work, right? right and it right. didn't work because it was just extra information that was complicating the situation. But that child, that social partner, that child who does not use language to connect with other people, we're going to use sensory motor or behavioral strategies. Our language partners, we can start to use language-based strategies. It's a super, super exciting time. And this is um, the crux of some of the work that I do in terms of my research is kind of understanding parents matching developmental level with the strategies they're using. But once language comes into play, we can use emotion words. We can use um, timers and schedules and all of those types of things to convey information because information is a very powerful regulating tool. I mean, I often say to parents when they say, well, they don't really need to know what's going on. I'm like, when was the last time you were in a doctor's office and your appointment time came and went and then like 15 minutes came and went and then a half an hour came and went? Like, what does that do to your arousal level? And they're like, oh, it's not good. Right? You're like, right, no, no, right. no, it's not. Um, we like information. We like predictability. It's very regulating and organizing. So if we can convey information um, to individuals using symbolic means, we want to do that for sure. We can do that a little bit with our social partners too. We can use objects. We often use object schedules with them. So when it's time to transition, giving them an object related to the next activity to build in mm. some of that predictability, but it gets easier when we can use symbolic mm -hmm. forms for our language partner words and pictures and things. And then for our conversational partners, that's when we can start thinking about being reflective, right? And using the, all of that executive functioning and metacognitive skills. What I mm -hmm. often see though is people trying to do metacognitive, reflective, executive functioning things with children who are developmentally too young to do that. So, you know, I, I mean, you know, from, from your work, we've got some good data that says um, metacognitive skills emerge in the late preschool, early elementary years, solidly mm -hmm. formed around eight years old and typically developing children, but, you know, evidence before that um, as well. But I often just say to, you know, special educators or families of children with autism, if we aren't working with a child who's, you know, cognitively and linguistically at an eight-year-old level, if we're asking them to be reflective in a regulatory challenge, we're shooting too high. And so that's mm -hmm. one of the things that I often think about because people often go, oh, they know better because they did it the last time. And I'm like, they're not thinking about the last time right now. Um, you know, we have to go back to those earlier developing stra strategies, language strategies. Just give them a choice. In this moment, what do you want to do? What's mm -hmm. going to work for you? Um, mm -hmm. Or in this moment, here's this physical sensory motor support that I'm going to use with you. Um, and trying to make sure that we're, we're working at the right level for the child developmentally. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And um, this takes us to a study that you published along with a colleague about six months ago, which really shows that parent behavior does make a difference. And uh, so this article was in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders, and it found that the parent use of physical and language behaviors were associated with child social communication abilities. Um, and the article is fascinating, and I'm going to let you're going to do a much better job of synthesizing this. Uh, so let tell us what it what it, what you found. So the the goal of the study was really to start to unpack the developmental relationship between a child and a parent in terms of the emergence of emotional regulation in children with autism. We know a lot about how emotional regulation develops in a quote-unquote typically developing population, and we know children on the spectrum are at risk for challenges in regulation based on, you know, those neurophysiological studies and things that I, that I talked about. Um, and their social communication challenges obviously compound their regulatory challenges. So we know we have a population who has emotional regulatory 
difficulties. And it's well documented that they have emotional regulatory difficulties. But we don't know much about that interplay between parent and child and how a parent scaffolds the development for children on the spectrum. So this is really, I, I, I will say, a, a kind of a seminal study looking at what is the interaction between a parent and a child in terms of supporting regulation? And it, it was a um, unique study in that it was done within the context of the home environment. So um, I had 37 families who agreed to allow me to come in with a research assistant to videotape them playing with their children in natural family routines and looking for the types of strategies that parents use to support their child's regulation and engagement in their play. And we also had measures, as you mentioned, of child characteristics. So we looked at the child's language abilities in terms of what we call joint attention, which is really the reasons a child communicates, the, the reasons they connect to other people, um, and their symbolic capacity, which is how they do it, right? So why are they connecting and how sophisticated are they in them? They're doing it. And then we also had measures around sensory processing. We wanted to know, based on the child's characteristics in terms of their sensory processing, did that have an impact on how the parent scaffolded the development? We were a bit surprised with that side. But what we did find was we have a population of parents, really not surprisingly, who are very sensitive and very attuned to their children and are modifying how they're supporting their children based on their child's language level, particularly. So if there was a child who was before words, the parent was using much more physical means to support that child in terms of the development of their regulation. And when the child did acquire language and was using symbolic forms of communication, and I say symbolic forms because not all these children were speaking. Some of them were using augmentative communication systems, so either pictures or some other sort of device, um, but communicating symbolically that the parents changed and shifted to using a more language-based strategy for them, um, which is really shows a sensitivity and a shift. And that's it parallels what we see in typically developing families, um, maybe at a developmentally later trajectory, right? These children are older than we would have expected to see that shift. Um, these children were all between 30 and 48 months of age. Um, and we would expect to see that in typically developing children happen earlier around 18 months or so. But we did see the shift. So what that gives us as is, is kind of researchers, as an intervention, is this platform to be able to say, hey, we've got some fairly sophisticated parents who are already making these shifts but let's reach down and try to figure out in terms of the types of strategies now that they're using to support in different um, times, so different emotional expressions, as well as what's the scaffolding reach. And I think one of the things that the study highlighted for us was that parents were waiting to use those language-based strategies until the child was symbolic, was using language to communicate, whereas in typically developing children, we see parents do a ton of modeling very early in life, right? So you'll see a 10 month old like fall down or, you know, scrape a knee or something. And the, and the parent will say, Oh, you're so sad. That hurts. And you see all this modeling of language for this 10 and 12 month old, but you never expect a 10 or 12 month old to use that language. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's about six or eight months later. So right. 18 months, 20 months, you can have a toddler who's in the middle of the room and they're just screaming. They're going mad. Right. They can't tell you why they're mad or what they're going to do about it, but they know how they feel because people, been modeling and scaffolding all that language around them over time. So what it does is that child being able to express themselves in that really conventional way accesses help from people 
really quickly, right? We know there's a mm -hmm. self-regulatory function to emotional expression, right? That's been well-documented in the literature. Being able to just say how you're feeling kind of takes you down a notch. But mm -hmm. it's that also being able to express it so that somebody else understands it clearly so they can come over and help you um, is really a meaningful strategy, tool, skill, ability to have. And what we're seeing is, you know, a lot of times when we, I work with individuals with autism who are much, much older and their families, the families will say, I don't use emotion words with them. They're too abstract. And I'm like, well, they're really too abstract for a 12 month old too. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. But it's that scaffolding right. and that exposure that's right. so important. So that's kind of where, um, where my head is going kind of with the research mm -hmm. now is just thinking about this wow, we've got this really sophisticated group of parents who are really thoughtful about how they're interacting with their children. What's mm -hmm. the next piece that's going to help with the developmental shift um, to help move the children mm -hmm. forward in more conventional more quickly? So based on your past few decades, um, your experience with certs, um, and also the latest research that you're part of, if, you, if, if there was one thing to tell parents to focus on, who are raising kids who are on the spectrum. What would you say? I would say focus on your relationship with your child. And I say that very confidently and very clearly. Um, you know, autism is a social communicative disability. It's a social disorder. I hate that word, but if we're going to put it, you know, pathologize it and put it in the DSM, that's really what it mm -hmm. is. And, and mm -hmm. what that means is the child is being noticed because they have challenges interacting with other people doesn't mean they don't want to interact with other people. It means they have challenges interacting with other people. And those challenges of interacting with other people impact every other aspect of their life, right? So yes. it's going to be harder to acquire language if I'm not socially connected to somebody. It's going to be harder to acquire a conventional regulatory strategy if I'm not socially connected to somebody else. It's going to be harder to learn how to read or play an instrument or throw a ball if I'm not socially connected to somebody else. So this idea of relationship and coming together in shared experience is mm -hmm. where the focus should be. Helping the children understand that we're really pretty cool and you want to be around us. <laughs> you know, yeah. I often say, I have to get up and be awesome today. And not because I'm going to be awesome, but I got to be the best thing in the room. I've got to compete with every other object and make sure that I am the most exciting, most interesting, most awesome thing. So I draw that child, that individual, that person to me, so I can open up the world for them. And so when I say relationship, I don't say it like, oh, tritely, you know, oh, yes, relationship's important. It really is mm -hmm. the key to all learning for everybody. But for this population, it is, it's the massive golden key, right? It's the key to the city. So when I say to families, you know, um, it's all about connecting. It's all about being present. It's all about finding what you enjoy together. Because that's where the learning's going to happen, is when you find the thing that you connect with that child or your child um, around and about and really, truly enjoy together, that's where the magic's going to happen. I'm going to repeat that. I'm going to repeat two things which are so key that what you've said today. One is that the relationship is key. That's where the magic happens. And then also what you said earlier, which is... ASD exists within the interaction. So it all goes back to this, this, this place of interaction and connecting and how important it is for parents to connect and teach our kids about relationship and connection. With that, 
It is time for the parent footprint moment question that I know, Amy, you have been waiting for. The, <laughs> <laughs> the question. Yes, yes, I have. <laughs> yes, you have. Tell us about a time when you became aware of yourself as a parent or an individual and that new awareness had a positive impact on your child. So I, I, I'm laughing because I did think about this question and I said, if he asked me about interacting with my clients, I could like rattle off seven. <laughs> I'm like, but what does that mean for my, my, my kiddo? And yeah. um, I think there's a, a connection between the two, a real connection between the two for me. And, and one is, it's very true. I, I do have one son. He's 10 years of age now. And I've always said, and everybody around him has always said that he is a very old soul in a young body. And he always has been. And so I always say, I'd love to take credit for, you know, his teacher saying mm -hmm. how empathetic he is or how aware he is of others' needs and, you know, watching out quietly for others. And, um, but I think that's really him at a core. And, um, he actually, just to give you a, a quick example, he, he did a, a camp with me, a theater arts camp uh, last year for children on the spectrum. And he was a peer and he was nine at the time. And there was one child there who was really challenging to the adults in terms of trying to get him to settle because he was just a really, really busy kid. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I look over and he's sitting down beside my son. And I was like, how'd you do that? And he's like, he loves cars, mom. I just told him to park it. And I was like, oh, whoa. Nice, <laughs> nice. Like, I would have never had that presence as a nine-year-old, so I can't take credit. But what I will say is that um, I think my piece for the, my son is that um, is my ability to be present for him, and I think I get that from my professional work and can transition mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. and that I can recognize his um, old soul and his young body and really give him the credit he deserves for who he is and recognize that in him. And I think that's, that's my moment is just being able to be present to recognize it in him, but also um, recognize it for him because I think that's, that's important that he understands that I see um, how cool of a kid he is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Be present. And again, yeah. it totally fits with what you've talked about in terms of the relationship. Right. Be present yeah. and uh, you clearly focus on your relationship with your son. So thank you for sharing all of your wisdom today. You have all been listening to Making Meaningful Differences for Individuals with Autism with Amy Laurent. And Amy, tell everyone where they can continue to find your work. Uh, so I do have a website. Um, it is my name. So it's just www.amy. Um, hyphen Laurent.com. So the hyphen is really important. So I'll spell it A-M-Y hyphen L-A-U-R-E-N-T.com. And again, the hyphen is really important. If you put that in there, you'll find all sorts of um, resources for supporting families and children and educators on the spectrum um, that you may find useful. Tons of printables, videos of me talking about how I would use supports, whether I'm in a classroom or in a home with a child. Um, that's there. If you don't put the hyphen in, you're going to wind up at a high-end dating service in New York City and get very, <laughs> very different results. Well, who knows true. what true. people are looking for. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I, I've got both for you. Yeah. Um, only yeah. affiliated with the one with the hyphen, but there are options. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Amy. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, everyone, thanks for listening to the show. Check us out at www.parentfootprint.com. Be the person you want 
your child to become. Focus on your own awareness and engagement and relationship with your child. And as always, I'll leave you with this final question. What footprint do you want to leave?